So I'm Jason, Jason Scheftel, and I'm basically a China specialist. And what I sort of do is try and help people and businesses navigate what's going on in China, sort of give people a sense of how things work, why they're happening the way they are, and sort of where they're headed. And today, I think we're talking about the public health measures and the origins of the pandemic, where, how things probably happen, what we won't know, what we might be able to learn, and sort of how to think about it as new information comes in. That's that's really cool. Um, you suit our podcast, so like I found you on Podmatch, so it was yeah, it was really mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, so you wanted to talk about the origins of the pandemic and China-specific public health internal security. Yeah, yeah. that's the that's the yeah. thing. So I just feel like in the West, people have such a there's a lot more ambivalence about what's going on and are we hitting personal liberties and what are we doing? Are we incompetent? Can we not manage anything properly? Is this a disaster? And so I just want to give some context for that. So how to think about it and yeah, what things might look like. I think it's just useful to people because there's so much like emotional politicized stuff going on where just getting a better handle on it could be really useful because it just looks like we're going to be dealing with stuff like this for a while. So yeah, especially on social media where you have so much of misconceptions misinformation spreading and like people don't know what exactly to believe yeah and so like my family my parents are doctors my sister's a doctor brother-in-law's doctor everyone's a doctor and then but I go talk to my friends and they're just looking at Instagram or whatever and they live in totally different worlds like yeah. completely different worlds so I get it. it is yes and you're a are you a medical student or yeah, I was a medical student, but like I switched. Uh, I was a scholarship holder initially, and I was given a chance to study medicine. I worked really hard for that, um, mm -hmm. and I got a chance. And uh, after a couple of years, I I figured out this wasn't the uh, like career I wanted to have. And now I'm like uh, trying to do business so I can restructure the current education system because I feel like. That's what we need right now, especially when the uh, the pandemic is showing us that our current situation, you know, like education system is failing in yeah. various areas. That's yeah, that's big. I have a lot of a lot of admiration people for people, especially doctors who are willing to move away. Right, it's very hard. I know a lot of yeah, doctors. it's, who it's are very hard. It was very hard for me to make the decision to stop. I decided like this is not the life I want to live. It's like I'm always constantly like following the truth, whatever that might be for me and what mm -hmm. feels right to to uh, to my heart. And I will follow up that way. Like I can't exactly live like the majority of society. And therefore, I made a stern decision to back away from med school. Yeah, you know, I did something sort of similar. I'm a lawyer by training. So yeah. I went to law school and I practiced law and I did development law. So a lot of where this comes from is I was it's around the world. I was in Asia, I was in Europe, I was in, I was in South America, in the US, obviously doing development. How do things develop? How do you know, cities and systems and infrastructure, all this develop? But I was very constrained by the, the legal world and by even sort of the little project teams. And so I was look, I ended up looking for something that was broader and that let me integrate more 
you know, ways of looking at things to give people a better, more comprehensive picture of things. So I was in the law and it was things were so narrow, so yes. small minded that it was very difficult for me. So I definitely understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And uh, most of the people I realized uh, I was studying with were only book smart. And, yeah. and then I was like, when you're going to live life, you're not going to live life according to how you study. You're going to live life a totally different uh, you're, it's a totally different thing when you're going to actually go out to the world and this education system kind of makes us kind of neglect the world in a way yeah. and yes and that's what I was like this is happening at the same time and nobody wanted to, to talk to me about it because it was so mm. true at the same time they didn't want to face it so yeah it's terrible I mean it's even worse it's it actually prolongs and sustains people's adolescence including in grad school. I mean, you probably saw people in your medical school class. You're like, how do you even get up in the morning and put yourself together? Like yes. there's basic things people don't learn how to do. Yeah. And it's, it's very bad. Like it used to be, you'd learn more skills, you'd learn more practical things, but now it just lets people burrow away into books. Yeah. And in medic medicine law, you burrow away into your little specialty. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, you're a surgeon and you could do one procedure on the third toe of the right foot. You know, that's what it, yes. where it feels like things are headed. And it's really, it's not what we need. And it's causing a lot of problems and there's just so much debt associated with it. There's yeah. so many, the, the, you know, the capital markets, the, the credit systems we have for it, all of it, at least in the US where I know more about yes. is very disturbed. So I, I, I agree with you hundred percent. It's dangerous, hard to know what to do. Education's a tough nut to crack though. Yes. It's all these like, you know, just prestigious institutions. They have long histories. It's sort of like, it'd be better if, if education was more like LA where it was all 50 yes. years old, yes. you could just come in and do it. But yes. it's more like, you know, University of Paris has probably been around 1,200 or something, 1,400. Yes. So. Yeah, I know. Tough. Yeah. So well, anyway, we, we, I feel yeah. like we're, we can, we're, we're like talking about all sorts of stuff, yeah. sort of equalization of that. So yes, it, it's, it, it's, 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 it's very interesting because there are a lot of women who I talk to who are trying to find a way, they're like so independent and so successful and so self-reliant that they're trying to find a way to be interdependent with like a partner. You know what I mean? That's yes. their challenge in a lot of ways. So they're like, all right, I have everything, but I'm alone. Um, so it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's so different. And it's obviously, that, yes. you don't want to, yeah. Yeah, it's for my aunt, it's the same thing. She's alone, she's mid forties and she has her own thing, her own business. And that's, that's one thing that's bothering her. And I was like, for me, it's a complete opposite. I'm trying to get out of the culture. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a big thing. I mean, in India, I know more about India than Sri Lanka, but I know in India, I mean, the, the gender, you know, if they could empower the women in India more, which is such a large, it's just, it would be tr so transformative for that, for that culture. But yeah. it's just, things take a long time. And unfortunately, you sort of have to, if you're in it, you have to fight your way yeah. out in a lot of yeah, ways. You yeah. have to. I fight like almost every day. So like for wow. freedom so and stuff like this. And you're fighting like your parents and yeah, yeah behind closed doors always fighting yeah and it's it's the thing is that even in sri lanka we portray that we put the women out but it's not that kind of situation when you come into sri lanka it's like there are so many news that saying uh, sri lanka is a feminine country we allow the females to be financially independent but when you take a look at the country that's not the situation yeah it's false yeah uh, media propaganda everything yeah i mean i, I believe it uh, i definitely believe it yeah no that's it's really, it's really upsetting it's so bizarre it feels like the 
the world, the world, it's like the future is here in many places. And then it's, it's moving forward in a lot of places, but things are so different all around the world that it's like, if I, like the, the people I talk to, like the people in my law school, the people, the, the women, the professional women I know, it, it's like, it's the, your world, the, the world of Sri Lanka is so foreign to them in a way that it's, 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 it's bizarre. Cause they're often very feminist. They want to help things, make things better, but you can't just come in and try and say, here, we, here's what we did in the United States blah, 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 blah. You have to really, it has to come, you know, struggle by struggle, family by family, yes, yes. like woman by woman. And it's, it's tough. Also the social pressure is very hard. I imagine like, yeah, the, the because like probably yeah, can't because... suffer talking to their mom every weekend yes. and just hearing, you know, that kind of stuff. It's very tough. So. And especially for a person like me who just switched from something like medicine to business, it's yeah. like, like the whole family is like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so like I get a lot of pressure like that because they really like the hard fields and all all the careers they taught me were very limited but when you look actually in the world there are so many other careers and stuff yeah like. it's kind of similar <laughs> my family is Jewish so it's it's very similar to bizarrely certain Chinese South, South Asian stuff where it's like you could basically be a lawyer a doctor or an engineer and yes. everything else is just a wasteland that we don't touch you know what I mean basically <laughs> and so I, get, I definitely get it. But yeah, it's, it's so narrow. I mean, the crazy thing about the world today is that there's more jobs, more types of jobs, more cool jobs, more impactful jobs than ever before. But if you just walk through the universities, you walk through what your parents think of the world, you'll think there's nothing, you think it's the most narrow thing in the world. Yes. And it's, it's not true. I mean, I had a, I mean, the, the innovation you can do in medical technologies, right? The medical devices you can make right now. It's amazing. It's like, yes. it seems to me more, far more impressive than what I see in actual medicine. Um, yes, so. because like, uh, especially during a time like the pandemic where the hospitals are definitely full and there are not many medical uh, practitioner people who can help you. So uh, when a company comes up with the, all these uh, devices, because the future is here, of course, and yeah, uh, it's like they don't need um, physical consultation from the doctor itself. They can have it now through a machine. So yeah, it's been crazy. The pandemic in the United States has changed medicine more in the last year than in the last 10 years. I mean, you exactly. can do tele telemedicine visits, you can do all these things that they didn't want to move on, they didn't want to improve. Excuse me. They, the, there's finally pressure to do it, like the insurance companies and the bureaucracies and the government are sort of in like a, a disgusting, like, knit, like, really tight web. But when a real crisis happened, it finally moved all sorts of things. So it's, it's, you know, it says something when you only move or improve by crisis, right? That's not yes. how an individual tends to do best in the world, right? It's like, yes. I'm just humming along terribly. And then a crisis, it's like forced to change. It's like, well, yes. you could have been getting better the whole time. You wouldn't have to like have a crisis to make this happen. Yes. Um, all right, well, let's, well, let's get into it a bit. I think you have, you know, you have a lot of knowledge about, uh, you know, Sri Lanka and other places as well yes. as Europe that could add, make this a lot more dynamic conversation. Yes. Um, I think it should be really interesting just to to give people a bit about China. Uh, if that's okay with you, we should yes, sort of yes. maybe get into it. All right. So, yeah. So everyone is just wondering what's going on with the origins of the pandemic. So the WHO is recently saying, "Hey, it turns out you know we kind of discounted things a little too early with the lab thing, and there was there's just so much misinformation, disinformation about what probably happened." So really quickly, I'll just try and lay out the the two you know the, the plausible scenarios, what we can know, what we can't know, and just kind of take it from there and see you know, what we can actually learn about what, what happened 
and what the different public health perspectives or takes are on this sort of crisis. So, yeah, so basically in September, October of last year, of, uh, of 2019, excuse me, some, in, in one way or another, a virus popped out of, of China, of Southern China. And we know that there are cases that go back to at least October, definitely November, probably October, and then, you know, possibly September. And the way things happened in China, the, the sort of miscommunications, the errors, the malfeasance, it really doesn't suggest that there was any sort of nefarious plot to unleash this on the world. It looks like a classic case of like multi-layered government incompetence. If anything, the, 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 the province government and the city government were trying to cover things up. They were trying to prevent other people from knowing. They didn't want the central government to know. They wanted an expo to go on. That was sort of what was happening. And then, you know, in January of 2020, the, it was finally admitted that something was happening. The central government got word and we got like sort of the first lockdown in the world. It sort yeah. of, all of it sort of came, came down. And what we, you know, over the, the year since, we basically learned like probably what happened is there's, there's basically two options. There's one is that it came from what I like to call it is the wildlife food chain. So basically yeah. there's a lot of random wild animals that they yeah. eat in, 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 in China. And the whole, the whole system from capturing the animals, so finding the animals to, to far, the wildlife farms where you specifically grow the animals, distributing, you know, distributing, transporting, consuming that entire chain uh, from the farms, basically to the wet markets, which are the, the final end stage consumption mm -hmm. area. That entire place is a, is, a, is a zone where you can get sort of that zoonotic, right, jump, right? Yeah. Where it jumps from the animal to, the, to humans. And that's, that's likely it happened before. Like it happened, that's how SARS happened. And well, that's, that's a very common thing. And India and China, the, those two developed countries, this tends to happen in sort of the, the development fringe is a way to think about it. So there's like a city and then there's like a large, you know, typically like semi-tropical region of like wildlife all around it. And it's in those borderlands where you have, you know, you have humans and you have um, wild animals just kind of interacting and going back and forth. That's where I think 75% of all the sort of major epidemic pandemic risk is, is concentrated. Mm -hmm. So that's the main one that everyone focused on. That was what everyone tried to pin, pin it on. And that's what the WHO around 20 in early 2020 said, you know, it's gotta be this, this is what we think it is. The other option is that it leaked from a lab. So we've all heard about this, you know, this lab leak um, theory. It was very, it was discounted early on in 2020 for a couple of reasons. I mean, probably just, this is more speculation, but it's probably fair to give people a sense of maybe the trajectory of how we got to where we are with that, um, with this theory. Basically, early on, it was heavily associated with Donald Trump, who was calling, you know, was saying it came from a military lab. People very, really emphasized the military connection to this lab. But the truth is that this lab in Wuhan was created to, as a result of SARS in early, the early SARS epidemic in the 2000s, where the Chinese government was humiliated and almost had like serious political challenges as a result of that epidemic. They created a raft of measures to prevent this from ever happening again. So they did all sorts of things, all sorts of testing programs, uh, technology systems, et cetera, et cetera. They didn't work. Um, but one of the things was this lab, which was the very first biosafety level four lab is supposed to do research on novel coronaviruses. That's why it has the name. Everyone might've seen the John Stewart clip where John Stewart's like, it's in the name. Like it came from this place with the name. Well, the reason it has the name is because it was meant to prevent this, right? So they do all this research in there to prevent, the idea was to prevent this stuff from happening. It was not like there are, there is everyone's, they, everyone's probably heard of this gain of function research where 
you, you know, you do, you do research to basically improve the lethality or transmissibility or whatever, whatever vector or variable you want to take of these different um, viruses. But really, this isn't to, this isn't bioweapon research. It, the legacy of these biosafety level labs actually is bioweapon research. The U.S. did a lot of bioweapon research in the 60s and 70s as a result of the Cold War. So did the Soviet Union. And that's where we started seeing leaks. Leaks are very common. They happened in Singapore, you know, in the last 20 years. They happened in England. They happen all over and in very advanced countries as well. So, yeah, the other option for what happened is that this lab, which is holding all of these viruses, has more bat coronaviruses than like samples than anywhere else on Earth. And it's very possible that something just, you know, there was some technician error. There was some misplaced tool. There was some broken procedure, some faulty equipment, whatever it happens to be, that resulted in this thing leaking out, getting onto one of the workers or getting out into the-, the That's what I thought. Yeah. That's yeah. what I thought recently. Yeah. That's what you thought too. Yeah. 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 It's personally, I originally, I was leaning more towards the, the, the wildlife chain, yeah. but over time, I think a lot of the evidence is shifting towards the lab leak just yeah. because they've done the early genetic research of the early cases in October and November, it was originally tied to this wet market, the Hainan uh, seafood wet market. It turns out it wasn't. Like most of these cases, 80% of the cases didn't have anything to do with the wet market. So it's like, okay. And then they found recent reports that there are many people who are sick from the lab. It's, you know, it's, it's definitely trending in that direction, right? Unfortunately, and this is where things get messy, this is where the opaque communist party, one state system, one party system that we have there is very difficult for finding the truth about these things. It, the, the Communist Party is very, very concerned with its legitimacy, with its perception of how competent it is and how sophisticated, technologically savvy. So the idea that its first biosafety level four lab that took also, this is good to know, it took 15 years to build this lab. It took years to certify it. And nothing takes 15 years to build in China. Nothing. Nothing. Like <laughs> not, literally nothing. <laughs> because they uh, have such advanced technology. Yeah. Well, they also have, they'll have like three shifts of workers that are work, yeah. working literally 24 hours a day. Um, they want to employ as many people as possible. So they, they, will, they will surge people into these things. But this yeah. was different. This is um, advanced procedures. They, they don't have a, a technically trained workforce. They've never had people that have had to deal with these sort of diseases. Um, so they don't have the workforce. They, I don't think there's a lot of the specific containment facilities, procedures, programs, and you know, devices, as well as like materials that they never had to work with because it's their first one. And yeah, it's just well known that these things are already problematic. And I think State Department cables, so sort of the US State Department sends you know, information to all of its different embassies around the world and back to Washington. There were cables from I think 2017 saying, uh, this lab is a major problem. It's a, there's all these problems. The workforce is bad. There's multiple errors going on. It looks shoddy. And it took them, it took them I think it was approved in 2015. It was finally completed and it was finally sort of approved to be a real functioning lab in like 2017, 2018. So it took even more time just to approve it. So a lot of problems with the lab. And those are the two options that people should keep in mind. Wildlife food chain, it's not um, impossible. It's happened before. There's many good reasons, many statistical reasons, mm -hmm. many just reasons that could happen. And then there is this lab, which people should realize it's not a crazy military operation. Trump tried to, I mean, the, the American media, I, I know less about Europe, but in, the, in America, they very much want to discount this, this possibility. Uh, Trump originally associated very heavily with the military, early media reports associated with the Chinese military, which is involved, is almost involved in anything like this. So that's not news. Yes. But 
they associated with that. And it just rapidly became this fear that if this was a leak or if this was something that wasn't natural, that it would create a massive conflict between China and the United States in particular and the West in general. So I think the media was scared. The media didn't want to support Trump. There were many things, sort of nested things that came together to make this, to make sort of the, that option get sidelined. But now it's come back with a like fervor, like a major force. And it's even more of a problem because now people are saying, hey, why'd you discount this? Are you just trying to lie? Like, are you just, yeah. did you want us to not believe it? Did you, are you trying to manipulate us? So, I mean, I saw a recent study, something over half of the US population now thinks it came from a lab. And that's pretty bad for the, the media and, and not and it's not really the media to say, like, I don't wanna say that, it's really yeah, public China. health measures in general as well. Yeah. So. well what about, um, does it uh, bring up tensions for China and the US relationship as well? Yeah, it brings up major tensions, major tensions. Uh, it brings up major tensions for sure. I mean, the US is almost has a bipartisan animus against China at this point. Yes. It's, it's, it's very intense. It's pretty deep. We'll see how long it lasts. I, I think it, we're going to see, it really depends on the Chinese economy. If the Chinese economy continues to do well, it, it's just, it's creating major hostility between, you know, the U.S. that feels like it's in decline and a China that looks ascendant. It's just already, that's a bad picture. And then if it's also, you know, is the source of this, these lockdowns and all these public health measures that the U.S. population, a large percentage of it, very, very, very much dislikes, that adds even more to it. And then there's also the, 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 the Democrat Republican thing in the US, the, the right and the left in the country, where typically what happens is the left in the US likes to say, we're, we're, we're talking about big issues. It's like liberal democracy versus totalitarianism. And then the right will say, no, it's the US versus China. It's like, you don't want to point the finger, the point, like you don't want to point your finger at the one real issue. You want to talk about all this crazy stuff. And then when, you know, the rubber hits the road, you're not willing to point out the problem or to you know address it directly, right? And this is the same thing we saw with is you know Islamic terrorism or Islamism or extreme yes. Islamic extremism. There's all these same battles over are you gonna point directly at what we think is the issue or are you not going to? And obviously on the right, they're simplifying these issues, right? It's not the over obviously often oversimplify it. And then in the the left, you often often over abstract it into something broader than maybe it is. So that's sort of a, a challenge that's sort of nested within this is just the the way that these these lockdowns were they were um politicized and they were politicized is the way before they were, we talk about how they were politicized it's how they were sort of implemented so i mentioned how this sort of left right split in the u.s and china I and mean, so within the u.s about the public health measures and sort of whether we're going to talk about china directly or dress or dress directly that's one thing and then there's also the the split over how to implement different public health measures right so in the u.s there's are we going to do lockdowns, masks? Everything became politicized within the country. And the, the, the contrast for all this was what happened in China, where early on there was a massive, large, massive, successful lockdown, right? Whatever else you want to say about China, it was, that was successful. And just to give people context, it's a very different system. And the, the means that China used to lock down its country aren't like public health means. Like These are internal security systems, right? China used uh, surveillance technologies, monitoring, um, all of that is what actually moved, you know, moved the needle to, to lock down the, the, the virus and get control over it. Uh, and then the West in general was responding to that early success, right? Or that early heavily state-driven authoritarian sort of success. And it's been a major problem for Western countries to even conceptualize whether they're doing things well, whether they're doing things wrong, because this they're always comparing themselves to China, which has a very different system. 
And I think it's just good to keep in mind for people like what is or isn't possible in a more democratic constitutional system versus what you can do if you're a one party state, because it's, it's very important to just keep that in mind. And we see that, like you said, in the politicized yeah. nature of these COVID health measures, right? Where it's just, it's become, everything has become a battle where, you know, whether it's face masks, whether it's vaccinations, mm -hmm. yeah. every single thing is a, is a major uh, political, you know, tinderbox basically. So yeah, that's sort of what we're seeing. And the, it's, it's hard to sort of know where things will go, but one of the other side of things is that China was very good at doing the, basically the security defensive measures of preventing the spread of using limiting things and sort of basically lock, locking down is a great, really, really great word for quarantine lockdown of what things were like in China, but it didn't actually succeed as well on the sort of the more offensive measures of creating the vaccines, right? The, the couple of vaccines that China has created were are not very effective. And the vaccination rollout in China was is much slower than it was in the West, particularly the United States. But then you have this problem of China can actually just mandate vaccination, which is it's almost certainly going to do within the next couple of months or the next six months or so. Everyone's going to have to get vaccinated in China. And you can't do that in the United States. Uh, yeah, so it's something similar. A lot of corporations are actually leading this sort of charge in the United States. So universities can mandate their students get vaccinated, right? Yeah, universe, I mean, I actually don't know if business, if certain like a business could mandate their employees, I actually don't think so, but they can make it so difficult that basically you have to, uh, yeah. but the actual states uh, can't as much. So that is, well, I mean, that's just a major, you know, it's a problem as, you know, the Delta variant becomes as transmissible as measles. It's much more important in that, that subsection or subgroup of the population that is vaccinated is going to get run through with the virus. So it's a real problem. I'm curious, do you think, like when you look at the Chinese response, how do you think it was perceived in France or in the university or in the medical community that you're a part of? Did it feel like people were impressed with how it achieved things? Yes, I think, I think they, they actually took actions immediately. Like I, like, like I heard the first case was in like end of December, 2019. And then immediately afterwards, they went on a like lockdown. And I was uh, watching videos of uh, people saying life under quarantine. And they were pretty much showing how they were basically going to the grocery store, coming back, they were replacing their coats and um, everything. Like I saw that, so I would say their their way of like responding to the situation was like quick and effective and that's why they sparked um, faster recovery at first mm -hmm. so i would say the health measures were really well done really well done the other thing i think is really so different about china is that it has total control over over the media so it was the first case wasn't really in december it was a couple months earlier and there was this mm -hmm. early back and forth but you know, in, in the context, it was still very responsive, right? Yes. In, when you look at other countries, like, okay, a couple of months versus never, right? Or versus yeah. like just a total disaster. So it was very responsive in that sense. But the other big thing is it has this control over the media. So it was able to remove all news that, that any, all communications that were went against its narrative and its goals, right? In the West, it's so different where you just have all of these constantly churning competing perspectives. 
and the government has to manage them. And you know, one thing we're learning is that the 20th century public health measures often sort of scared people into doing things or like gave you a little bit of misinformation to sort of get you, yes. you know, hey, it's gonna, you know, you scared people into doing stuff to get yes. as higher compliance and as possible. It's very hard to do that these days. Yes. Uh, one thing that was so stunning is that after the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was sort of taken off for a day in, uh, it was taken off for a day just one day and when it was when it was turned out it was a you know there was a blood clot issue it the u.s vaccination rate plummeted and never returned to that level right the moment there was a, a appearance that hey like the vaccine wasn't as perfect or amazing as, as we were making out to be it wasn't as well tested people just lost faith and then you know this was magnified by what they heard they heard very sensationalist things about how people's you know they're exploding basically right people <laughs> are exploding um from this vaccine it's, it just makes it very hard to recover from these things. If you have total control over information, you can really do a lot more. Yeah, I know. And uh, when we are talking about vaccines is that like everybody is so scrutinized over the theory that we learn about vaccines. So yes, generally vaccines do like save a lot of lives. But when we are considering COVID-19 vaccines, there is a bit of uh, logic we have to take into account because why is the media actually forcing the public on uh, to take this, to take this? And uh, why isn't the public actually looking at the other side of the story and just just sticking to whatever they find on social media? You know, it's like there are two sides of the story, and they should learn how to like overweigh the situation and kind of see both sides and then combine the two perspectives together and then come up with a solution. Like I feel like the public lacks that. Yeah, I agree. You know what I always think about though, you know, I learned pretty early on that everyone is so much more emotionally reactive rather than they are sort of rationally deliberative. Yes. And a great way to look at it is just look at the United States in Afghanistan. Yes. You know, it, after a big attack on, on the country, it, you know, went, his, the country went hysterical and invaded a country and tried to, you know, transform a little mountain country into a liberal democracy to, for 20 years totally failed no one within two years no everyone knew this was not going to work yet it stayed for another 18 it was there for 20 years because it was just emotionally reacting you know and i think it's when you're saying that you know everyone should weigh things i think everyone's just responding to the emotional and since particularly like sensational emotionally gripping stuff you see on social media that's why it's so effective right that's the yes. marketing is to make you know it's like an advertisement it's like you know, you, the beer, you don't just drink a cold beer, a cold train barrels through a wall covered in ice and, you know, throws, you know, throws a, you know, warm beverage in your a cold beverage in your hand. It's like a very much more sort of comprehensive, emotional sort of reaction they're going for. And it really works. I don't think people want to read what random CDC reports say. I don't think anyone cares. I think it's, it's very tough to get people to rationally deliberate about things. It's like, I think we're moving farther and farther away from that. You know what I mean? Yeah, and the more, like, the more people do that, the more divided we are. Actually. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think, are you seeing any sense that any country is actually going to move against these sort of things? Like, or that, is it just naturally trending in this direction? Like, I just keep, I see that things are just going to keep. Yes, it's know, going to keep for, on going. Like, my, my question is like, how, do, how does public health uh, measures, if we want to talk about that, how does it improve within the context of emotional contradictory information flows? You know what I mean? Without yes. those 
controls. I mean, that's one of the things we have to consider is like, if we can't be China, if you can't have these intense control of information, you know, top down authority to mandate whatever you want to the population, you know, and control them even at a micro like street level, like you can, people would, be, would their, their doors would lock, you know, they'd be like, okay, you can't go outside and your door would just be locked. <laughs> um, that was the sort of things you saw in China where it's like, you can't do that here. How do we design systems that can actually respond um, to things like this? You know, that maintain people's autonomy or liberty or whatever, and can also work in the context of contradictory information flows. It's like a very tar hard problem. But I also don't think our governments are really looking at that problem. No, I think they won't address this for uh, more years because they want to keep the public under control. Yeah. I think that's the goal. I think that's why, that's why they are there in the first place. I think that's the role of the government is to control the public. That's what you think? Or is that, is that what the, their desire is? Or is that what you think that it's? That that like, I think it's like, it's their role because they kind of play as a leader, a type for a, for a whole community. So it's like up to them. It's like kind of the responsibility there. It falls, the responsibility kind of falls into their own hands, I would say. Mm. Yeah, and it's so tough because every government, like the, the Western democratic ones, they're worried about the next election, right? So in California, where I am, the, the governor was too strict in a lot of ways with the people felt he was too strict with the COVID measures. So he has now has a, um, what is it? He has a, not an election. He has a, um, a recall vote coming up because people were so upset with him. They're going to try and oust him. Right. So that's always what the government's worried about. They're like, they want to control the people. They also want to keep their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in the U S you could just see them. I mean, not in the U S in the West, you can see them just getting wiped away by these things. So it's, it's a major challenge where these little local you know, obviously in China, they're also worried about their job, but they're more worried more about the stability of the entire Communist Party, right? They're not worried about the one guy at the top right now being ousted by the other ones. It's more like, are we going to undermine this entire system that we have? Um, so it's very different. Like in the West, the actual systems are strong, but the individual leaders are weak. You know, in yes. China, it's often that the system is weak and the individual leaders are strong. At least that's what we see now. Yeah. I feel like that that happens in the U.S. in the West. Yeah, in the U.S., the leaders are weak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. If you take Sri Lanka, it's like the system is incredibly weak. The leader is strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's often what you have. Like that's the more normal thing. I think when you have a strong democratic system, you but often. Like, but like, but it's a problem if the if the leader is like so much into dictatorship more than democracy. So that's a, a bigger problem issue. That what happens in our country is that there's one family that overrules the entire poly political system. So there is no room for new people to emerge. And that, that creates a whole new issue in like countries like mine. Yeah. And so how is, how is the pandemic in Sri Lanka right now? Or how is it? Yeah, we just got out of the third wave, like uh, lockdown. I would say that that lockdown was initiated just because of the situation happening in India and it was uh, magnetized uh, even more for us. Like we are a tiny island and uh, for like my dad was in, uh, dad is back at home and he told that everything's fine. It's just that like, the media kind of exaggerates the situation so much because India is a more powerful country and therefore they have all these situations like overpopulation and stuff like this. Yeah. And that aids in the virus to be spreading faster. And um, 
those are re really good conditions for the virus. And just because it's happening to them, yeah, the lockdown was forced politically mm -hmm. on us as well. And has Sri Lanka secured vaccines or is that looking like it will be next year or? Yeah, uh, we have uh, vaccines, but we've given the public the choice, you know, to take it or not. We're just we're like, probably we have this thing uh, there's, that has COVID, you have to take COVID-19 vaccines, but most of the people in our country is just ignorant of the, they don't read uh, all these warning signs and they're like, right. they believe it's their decision to take it or not. So we have a lot of uh, autonomy uh, there uh, within the public itself. Because they they think that if their president does so many things so many things wrong, how are the presidents in foreign countries? So that's their perspective. That's how they think. So mm -hmm. I would say our country is more autonomous. Like mm -hmm. the public cannot be controlled that much unless um, we're always thinking, why did this happen? Why did this happen? And we're kind of like contrasting it with situations that are happening all around the world. And we think that most of the situations that happen in India are actually forced upon us politically, because if it happens mm -hmm. in India, it should happen to us as well. Mm -hmm. And therefore we kind of follow the political patterns that India has. So, yeah. It's kind of similar to Canada here in certain ways where yeah. they often just go along or they try and be slightly different, but it, you're kind of forced, your hands almost kind of forced because you're, that's sort of the major thing right next to you. Yes. I think it makes sense. And, you know, what we see is just every country is reconsidering how, how good they are in comparison to everybody else. Like mm -hmm. early on, we saw New Zealand did very well. And everyone's like, New Zealand, it's a paradise. I have a, I did, a I did an interview with a guy who's, you know, he's, he was in New Zealand on the beach there. And he said, we have no lockdowns. We have no masks. It was, you know, June of last year when everything was really bad in the United States. Um, and there was definitely a sense of superiority or of like yes. doing things right. And you got it right. But we always got to remember a lot of these things are, are geographic in, in a sense. Like if you're an island, an island mm -hmm. nation, and you quarantine people who come in, it's a lot easier. You know, it's, yes. it's not that hard. I think what the US saw, and the really dangerous thing about COVID, and if we want to talk about how, well, there's just some of the reasons why you know, the US got so scared, the media got so scared of pointing out China, the fact that it might, it was, it was, it came from China and then it might have been a lab problem might have been a man-made problem rather than an artificial one you know part of the reason this is so terrifying to people is just because it undermines this whole globalized world that we have like if the united states had forbid all international travel in and out of the country right you know the things that would have been required to make a, 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 to prevent it from really getting into the united states are it's very intense it requires unraveling a lot of the world that we've built over the last 30 or 40 years i think it's just very scary to people and then you think you look at a place like new zealand it's much easier. You're just a little yes. island. Yeah, I mean, Sri Lanka, in a certain sense, is it's also kind of similar. I don't know as much about it. If the controls it's, it's are- It's a little similar. island. I mean, we get- No, I just mean the government. Like, can the government control, is it competent enough, in your opinion, to like sort of quarantine everyone coming in and all of that, or is it- Yeah, it's like, uh, I, I think that like, our government is, just doesn't care that much. Like, mm -hmm. they know that they can't control the public, you know, anyways, because- like, I don't know, like people in Sri Lanka are very autonomous. They think for themselves. So because they have been duped about millions of years with like kind of uh, weird presidents, we have this mm -hmm. history. So we are always like questioning everything the president says. And it's kind of got gotten out of hand some of the years, I would say.
but yes they have a choice i mean it's like it's free it's a bit free there uh, regarding vaccines and the covid-19 situation it's a bit free there yeah just you know it's it's just it's a really scary thing for a lot of people i think this idea that maybe a vaccine i mean a virus is what would start to break apart all the connections that we've built in the world right yes. the idea of like you can't fly from sri lanka to france anymore because there's now quarantine. You can't go from Thailand to Japan. You can't do all these things. I think it's just very, it's a very ominous thing for a lot of countries that rely on stuff. I mean, what we're seeing now with Cuba is Cuba requires foreign fuel, foreign food, and foreign consumer goods, as well as foreign hard currency to, to function. And during COVID, I mean, it lost, it lost travel. It lost the access to all these things. It lost the currency. So it's just, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible so, situation. And uh, even in Cuba, it's like, it's dictatorship, right? More or less. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's 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 trying to transition away, but it's basically a one-party, formerly communist sort of thing. Most communists, I mean, a good thing about communism, I mean, like communist communism is very good at creating communist parties. Uh, wor much worse at creating communist revolutions, and then terrible at creating communist states. You just end up with like a one-party state, just like a kind of generic, um, typically left left-wing authoritarian government. Um, and that's kind of what you see in, in, in Cuba, but they're trying to move away from it. Cuba just doesn't have much of a choice. It's kind of stuck next to the United States, kind of like a Sri Lanka with the, um, with India, yes. you're, you're very much stuck with that country to have a bad, terrible relationship. It is very, very difficult to maintain. So yes. we'll see where that goes, but it just, the way COVID has exacerbated all these problems in, you know, thir third world un undeveloped, underdeveloped countries is a, is a major, major issue that's kind of falling away. In, when we're looking at all this public health stuff, like in Latin America, the, COVID, the vaccines aren't, they're not arriving very quickly. And there's just, I mean, students there are gonna lose two years of school because they can't do remote work. There's only like 10% 10, 10 of the population in some of these countries has reliable internet access at home they can use to do this sort of teaching I mean, to learning. And then, you know, it's, it's just a disaster. You don't, you can't do this sort of stuff in the union. The teachers unions don't want to allow the kids back because they're worried about safety. So what do you do? I mean, you need these two years of school in a place, you know, like Bolivia or Colombia. You, you really need this. So it's it's a major disaster, like on the education front as well, you know, just in all these different areas. We're often only focusing on the public health where it's like, well, the the chaos that's being caused otherwise is, is very bad. It's much worse also in these, you know, poorer countries. Yes, uh, I, I also want to uh, tell you, would China one day overpower U.S.? Because I think that was something on my mind, like, for quite some time. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a really big common question I get asked. I think the I think long term China has a lot of problems. It has a lot of problems in the way its economy is structured. It's, you know, it's, it's consumer market, it's finance, financial system, it's currency, it's demography, it's energy, it's military problems. I think it really, there's a long list of, of reasons that of, you know, China has a lot of problems. And everyone asks this question, like, will, will the U.S. be stronger or weaker? What's going to happen? I don't think China's going to overtake the United States. I think that the, it's very interesting. In the U.S., you saw people start, people look at the, the, the trend lines to see, oh, China's going to be this, more, this much more powerful and economically or whatever. But we really have to look under the hood at a lot of things. And you know, China's system, the system it built to produce 30% of the world's goods and to develop its entire economy, to make up for the savings it didn't have, take in foreign investment, send all these you know, goods all around the world, pay for new systems within the country. I think every developed country wants to do what China did, right? And everyone knows, and it's a very impressive thing. 
the real the real thing to keep in mind is that this was, this was only possible in the last 40 years and it's only possible as a result of the US system that sort of enabled it right and the tensions we're seeing with the US and China are contributing to making things much much worse for that country and it already has yeah, I could go on for this for a long time. I, I really don't see, I, so just to be sitting yes. shorter. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think so. I think a good thing to keep in mind is just that, I'm wondering what, what take to take on this. I think that a good way to think about it is you look at, you look at China, it has 19 countries that border it. It has half of those countries claim some of China's territory. It's fought wars with basically every country around it. It has antagonistic relations with South Korea, with Japan, with Russia, with India, with Vietnam, the Philippines, with basically every country in every direction. And it has, it pays more for internal security for its own, to keep its population under control. That's the, the measures that it used for the public health are part of these internal security measures to prevent insurrections. Um, it uses, it pays more for that than its military security. And all of these costs cost a lot. Um, and what's happening is that China was able to go for a very long time without paying the costs of anything, right? So in the 90s and 2000s, China's, you know, labor force, largest labor force in world history, they were all young, healthy workers. They didn't need healthcare. They didn't need pensions. They didn't need anything. Like all these things that really cripple places like the United States or England or France, you know, with older demographies, all of that is, is going to appear in China within the next 10 years. China's demography is about to shift the entire country is going to become a very, very different place. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do is give a lot more context to these yeah. issues to try to explain why it's happening because we have this sense of, we have this increasing conflict between the US and China. Everyone's worried that China is gonna overtake the United States. And in certain like measures, it might for a while, like it might, uh, you know, by some metrics be a larger economy. It might have a larger, I guess it already technically has a larger military, but the qualitative edge and the durability of all this is what matters. So can China be exactly can China be the strongest country in the world for like 15 years, right? Yes. The U.S. has been, you know, I don't know, the wealthiest country for like 120 years or something like that. Um, there's deep sources of sort of U.S. wealth and power that are very different from China's. And sort of the, the book that I'm editing and, and going to publish later, early next year, sort of goes into some of these comparisons in a deep way because it's very important to understand how countries develop and why and whether things can last, right? What we're seeing is that COVID is wiping out the development of, yes. of a lot of countries and it's like a disaster. And yeah, and the problems in China aren't gonna get hit by COVID in the same way, but the things under the surface are probably even worse. So that's kind of where I'd leave it. I would say to any, all your audience and listeners, I don't think so. If you wanna learn like more about why, I'd check out some of my other podcasts, videos, books, write, writing articles and stuff to, to see more of that, just for some more details. but. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think about, it. I think the thing that people need to think about more, particularly in the United States, is like, it's not like, are we going to compete with China? It's like, are you going to be the best version of your country that you can be? Because that's yeah. actually how you'll perform. Yeah, because, better. yeah, the world is more about competition more than uh, individuals like success. They should care about yeah. this first, like yeah. as countries, like they're always competing with one another. And that's why we are so divided. Yeah, but it makes sense that it's motivating, right? Let's yeah. say- you know, you know, two people, you know, one guy likes, you know, likes a girl and then another guy, all, he learns another guy also likes that girl, right? It's like, it's suddenly there's competition. It's very motivating, right? It's the same thing with business. Like, oh, you're going after some market. And then you see there's another company that's also going after like, so you have to work harder. You have a, this competition can really push people forward, but only to a certain extent, right? You have to, if you're just trying to beat the Soviet Union and then you're trying to beat Japan, 
you're never going, you're going to be distracted and misdirected more often yes. than you are focused, right? And particularly on the right in the, the American you know, conservative part of the American political system, they're very focused on creating a new nemesis because it's a good way to unify the country even briefly and to kind of cover up problems within their own coalition. That's another thing. You often use enemies, foreign enemies, to make up for problems within the country. China's doing that right now with the United States, with Japan, with South Korea at times. It's using, you know, for, you know the, the sense of foreign humil past foreign humiliations of the country and rising greatness and nationalism to spawn a narrative that helps it deal with not deal with problems, you know, or <laughs> deal with the surface of problems that it can't really deal with within the country and stuff like that. I think every country like does that, uh, especially in like what um, what do you think about the future of India? How can they can make their economy better? Yeah, you know, I wrote a really long um, article. It was like eight thousand words, just comparing India and China because I thought it was so interesting. India and China are the two oldest, um, yes, you know, oldest civilizations, sort of that that are kind of continuous to today, and they're right next to each other on the other side of the Himalayas, but they've had very different recent histories, um, and. You know, my sense of what ha of what's going on is that India doesn't have the same state capacity as China. China has a really strong imperial impulse in its history. It's had multiple dynasties that appear that rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall, and they they're of different levels of you know, capacity and stuff. But they there's always this impulse. India has never had that quite in the same way. It's been always been much more divided and, and sort of in pieces. It's much harder to gain control of the whole country. When it did happen, it was much. For a much shorter period and never really erased a lot of the divisions around the country so india is now like a giant federation right almost a confederation mm -hmm. with just all these different pieces and it's a it requires a weak system to hold it together right a strong system wouldn't be able to do it they would all break apart yes. so that makes it much harder to do nationally integrated sort of measures like china you can just you in china they redid the entire language of the country right so in china they actually speak multiple different languages yeah. they have one written language and that they, in the 1950s, they simplified that language so everyone could see it. And they can build, they can do all sorts of things at a national scale that India can't do. And China also sort of, it got lucky, right? If this special period we're talking about from the 1980s to the 2000s, to 2010 was like a, a period when there's a lot of capital flowing around the world. There was a lot of, there were young labor forces. There was new integrated global supply chains. All of this made it possible to do this sort of export development, right? Where you, you build stuff for other countries within your country. So you produce things for consumer nations. That system, that sort of pattern that allowed China to develop and then also allowed India to, I'm sorry, that also allowed Japan to develop and South Korea to develop and Germany to develop, basically all of the major success stories the last 75 years, major ones. They all use this sort of export industrialization sort of model. It's not gonna be possible probably within five years. So India's chance to do something like that probably has passed. And mm -hmm. India's ability to leverage something like that to build the sort of investments it needs within its country was already weak to begin with. So India's uh, you know, future is never gonna be like this giant, super impressive state like China, which also I don't think China's gonna last in that state for a long time anyway. So I think that's, you know, China's states tend to rise, really peak up really high and then they crash pretty hard. Um, so India's is going to be a much lower, uh, it's not gonna reach those sort of heights, but yeah. it could have a lot of potential, particularly it's gonna be more local in India. So places like Goa, Places like uh, you know Cochin, these these old port cities, uh, places that are interconnected to different parts of you know global supply networks, they can do well. But you know the the large interior, the agricultural parts of India, it's gonna be very hard to develop. You know the, the classic development problem is basically when you have a lot of needs, a lot of you know infrastructure needs, a lot of mm -hmm. educational needs, a lot of healthcare needs, 
a lot of, and they, all of it requires capital. So you have a lot of capital needs, but you don't have a lot of capital generation. You don't create a lot of wealth within the country. I mean, that's the classic problem that India faces. Um, that most most countries development, most countries are trying to develop face that problem, and India faces it at a really big level just because it's so big. And so part of the reason the United States ended up as wealthy, wealthy as it is, there's always a question, did the United States just steal money from everybody else? Did, is, is yes. it an imperialist power? Is it taking all this money from all over the world? Well, not really. A lot of it is just related to the geography. So the United States was basically the world's largest like food producer, industrial power, uh, mark, consumer market, all these things in like the 1880s. You know, that was before it, it was after the civil war here, but before it ever you know, took over Cuba or became an imperial sort of power. And it's, you know, the only, the only reason this happened is because of basically the, the wealth, the bounty of North America, right? This was a region that has a large river system that allows you to transport goods all around the country. It has some of the best agricultural land in the world on top of that, um, that river system. So it allows you to distribute agriculture all across the country. It allows all these different cities to form naturally, it allows capital and, you know, banking systems to develop on top of that. It was really set up for the sort, that sort of development. It was really lucky none of the resources in the, in the continent had been really used. Uh, you know, so the, all, the, all the, you know, steel, coal, iron, everything in the United States was never accessed before. And the, United, the, you know, the early American settlers and people gained control of the continent very quickly. And so a lot of things came together very quickly in the United States in a way that's really unique or singular in, in world history, right? And it, you know, it makes sense, you know, the country, it's very weird to have a country like the United I'm not trying to, you know, what, part of what I try and do is not talk like Americans an exceptionalist nation. Like I think that what you have to do as an American is often try to understand where, where this comes from. If, if this country is so powerful, let's not pretend it's because we're morally per, more powerful than other people. We're like, our culture is superior, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the, the most helpful way to think about it is that is to look like really from the ground up. It's to think, okay, you know, what actually made this country powerful and that can give us a, a good perspective on it is, is really almost, you know, it's geography and some recent history. Uh, but that, that's a lot of where it comes from in the United States and places like India and China, they not only is, I mean, there's just, it's just a much more difficult place. It's like the same reason the, the Europe, Europe doesn't have United States of Europe. It has a kind of broken European union that's trying to not fall apart all the time. It's, you know, th that's the way things are. And it, it's really terrible in certain respects. Um, and I think a lot of people in the United States have always tried to figure out like, how do we deal with this sense of privilege or um, super abundance of resources and wealth that you have here? And I think, you know, over, since the 1990s, you know, Amer and it really since 19 1945, the United States has tried to provide a lot of resources to the world. I mean, it's done obviously invaded, every, it's basically invaded everywhere, but two countries. So it's not perfect or whatever, but it has, you know, opened up channels for aid and investment and all these different flows we see around the world that, that you know, fuel, fertilizer, semiconductors, all these things flow around the world in part because the United States enables this. And it's just a challenge. Like if things go, go south as a result of COVID, which really looks likely, the world's in a different place where we're not gonna be able to see the same sort of global resource transfers flows that we saw in the prior 20, 30 years. So it's gonna be a real challenge for people in the United States to think about like what, what's going on, why this happened, how are we still wealthy? Why are things so terrible around the world? It's, it's a real challenge, but the prospects, I mean, I think the best, best way I think about it is just that it's a combination of a, it's an interaction of geography, um, which is sort of the base layer, and then the different technologies, right? So in India, India needs, one of, one of the truths about India is that the, the, the English language is a very big unifying force 
for the country. Colon there's many, many bad parts about colonialism, but at least for India, that it serves in many ways the same function that written Chinese serves in China, where it allows for some you know, platform for, for communication and for exchange all around the country. But a, a country like India is going to need to really maximize all of its strengths and then find new technologies that can sort of help it make up for the sort of more inherent weaknesses it has that are just a result of you know, bad land, you know, bad agricultural land, a lot of mountains everywhere, very tough to develop infrastructure, uh, some of the, the tropical climate, just things that, that do a lot to make development much harder. And yeah, it's a, it's a really big topic. I mean, it's something I've been trying to get talk more about, but it, it's a tough one. I mean, do you think when you look at what I said about just the geographic thing, the sense of American exceptionalism, do you typically hear stuff like that? Or do you hear, how do you perceive the United States or how Americans think of themselves, I guess? Like, do you think they're just the king of the world? Like, Everyone. Yeah, like uh, everybody tells like they're the king of the world, but they're like more like divided because, as you said, like they have different parts of Europe just put in together like salad, uh, salad full of dressing. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's yeah, it's a very it's a very different thing. I mean, I think that one of the sadder things is like what people, you know, someone like you or someone like very educated who comes to the United States, let's say they're an immigrant, they always come here, they think they're expecting like brilliant people everywhere. They're expecting like, oh my God, it must be filled with geniuses and, and whatever. And you come to the United States and you're like, no, it's filled with exactly the same bell curve of, of human yes. beings and anywhere else. And it's just, it's very hard to get a sense for how a country like this, you know, what it all would make it special, right? I think the easiest way I think about it is that there's a particularly the, the geographic component, this idea that certain regions are more abundant in capital and have less capital needs. So basically the United States, it's very cheap to build like the road system. The United, most of the United States is flat. You just build roads, you just built railroads really quickly. China, to, China needs dozens and dozens and dozens of tunnels to build like a couple rail, like a couple rail lines to this one region in China, literally require like hundreds of, of tunnels to get through. You're just shearing through mountains all the time. Like all the infrastructure you see in China, it'll be insanely impressive. Like a giant bridge, like crossing a chasm and like huge trains across the, it's like, yeah, it has to be impressive because yeah. otherwise it's not enough. Yeah, so. it's, it's probably not going to withstand like uh, all the obstacles in that location itself, so. Yeah, and then what happens is you often, often a lot of these regions that you build infrastructure to don't have the workforce and the, the sort of productive potential in you know, that, that would justify it. So in the United States, you build the transcontinental railroad from the East coast to California. It's like, okay, well now you're, you've integrated California into the system. It's like got great harbors, great agriculture. You know, you had the electronics industry, you had aviation, you had oil, you had the Hollywood, all these new industries developed in California, you know, in China, you, you make a, a railroad to the West and you end up in, in Xinjiang, which is like basically runs on forced labor. It runs on basically slave labor to make cotton and silicon and you know extract resources, but it's not the same thing. You actually, and you see this in China a lot, you'll build a massive infrastructure to like the equivalent of Appalachia in the United States, where it's just sort of like this gruff, angry mountain sort of region where the people, you know, they just want, they just want to do what they're doing. They don't want the government in their face. And then it, it never ends up justifying a lot of the um, the investment. And it's not because the people are dumb or weak or, or stupid or anything. It's just a lot of the, the sort of cultural mannerisms and the potential of different regions is just very much geographically determined. You can make up for it with digital technologies to some extent, um, but it's a lot less than people think. Yes. 
stuff to Thank you. you. Thanks for the definitely... feedback. I don't get uh, much feedback, especially with my family. They don't tell yeah, me anything. Yeah, they don't tell me anything. So I don't know how well I'm doing. And uh, if they never tell me like, they never tell me anything positive, especially when I'm doing something because then it urges me to like do my best. So they mm. never tell anything positive until I can actually see. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very hard to get feedback these days. So yes. if, I, if that's helpful, I, I hope I hope it's helpful because um, I think it is. I mean, you definitely have the 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 passion and the the, the drive. So yeah. you know that's a lot, and I think the, the ideas are good. The issues you're to, you're focusing on are good. Um, you know, it, it, there there's probably going to be a lot of time where you without feedbacking, where it's just you though, yeah. and that's just it just, just goes feels so isolated, and it feels like you're the only person there handling life. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I get it. So, yeah, uh, I definitely, I definitely been there. I mean, I really spent, I'd say, a year and a half like that, and like right before the pandemic. So the year during, the year before, and then halfway through the pandemic was kind of like that for me. So, you'll get through it, yeah. <laughs> definitely. I hope so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Uh, we'll we'll talk again, and uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. All right. Be well. See you. you. So guys, we're coming to an end with this episode. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jason Schefter and the topics we covered. I um, also want to add this last thing was if there was one problem that happened early on the pandemic was that the Chinese government did not close down the airports, allowing people to, uh, who were already affected by the virus itself to spread to other countries. And that's where the problem emerged. If this didn't happen, like uh, the whole world wouldn't, uh, would be not having so many affected cases. But as I said that, as I said that, uh, they shouldn't shouldn't have done that. Now the world is taking opportunity of the situation. Businesses are taking full advantage of the situation. And therefore, I want to let you know that that was the biggest mistake the Chinese government made. Anyways, guys, uh, see you next time on um, Teo Podcast, The Pandemic Press. Hope you subscribe to Teo Academy on um, YouTube as well because we'll be uploading the live conversations that I had uh, face-to-face virtually. And uh, I am your host, Rashni Hebawasam, and I am signing out.